You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. All right, folks, we have a little more than 24 hours left in our campaign slash competition for the most beloved podcast host, a.k.a. whoever gets the most new monthly supporters on their team. So will you join Team Pete, Team Jared, or for the love of God, I hope, Team Marmalade? For those of you who have already made your choice, thank you. For everybody else, no thank you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> for those of you who have not, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And when you become a monthly supporter with a recurring monthly gift, it helps sustain our mission to bring the best in faith scholarship to everyday people for years to come. This is the closest I feel like we've ever been to being like NPR. I feel like I'm in an NPR ad right now. Well, we'd be, we'd be talking like this. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and if you do sign up, yeah. we'll send you our new... Our tote bag. Our tote bag. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but and, we would be saying tote bag for like 20 minutes straight. That's, that's, that's the difference. So this isn't quite NPR quality. Uh, and who knows? Who knows? The winning team, we may just have an exclusive Whoa. virtual hangout that would be for the winning team. Cool. So make sure you pick the right what if winner. Marmalade wins. It'll <laughs> no, just be a virtual hangout with Marmalade. Marmalade will show her butt at the screen for like a half an hour. That's what she'll do. Anyway, so. Again, the Bible for front slash give. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. Today on Faith for Normal People, we're doing a reissue of our conversation with Brian McLaren from July 2021. You may be wondering about this reissue, but if you've been around for a while, you know that each season, on the Bible for Normal People, we choose one or two episodes to reissue, and we thought this would be a really great one for Faith for Normal People because Brian lays out a framework for faith transitions, mm -hmm. and it seems like where a lot yeah. of people are, so it, it just seemed like a good conversation to have again. Yeah, and I think his way of thinking also is a really good basis. It's really for what we do on Faith for Normal People. And plus, Brian, you know, he's wicked smart. He's very pastoral. He's kind. He's never abrasive. And he's just a real guiding voice for a lot of people. So we're really happy to be doing this. Absolutely. So listen, we hope you enjoyed this reissue of our conversation with Brian. And stay tuned at the end for Quiet Time, where we will reflect on our own lives and faith. Let's get into it. I don't think doubt is the enemy of faith. I think doubt is the best friend of faith. Once a few people start having courage to tell the truth and admit their doubts, other people don't have to keep the secret anymore. Here's the thing, we're all in this together, and it's not just happening to us as individuals. The human race, the human community at large is trying to mature, and we all get to work out part of that process in our own lives and stories. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normal people. Introducing Bluehost Cloud. 
ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome, Brian, to our podcast once again. Always glad to be with you guys, and I, I always love to listen too. So, so keep up the good work. Well, great, yeah. And now you can listen to us and listen to yourself <laughs> when you when you listen to this. Isn't things, that great? Things just got meta. That's two for one right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I hate listening to myself on podcasts, but maybe I don't know. Maybe you're not like that. No, but, no. It's it's one of my least favorite things to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's talk today about faith and doubt, or maybe more specifically, faith after doubt, which. You know, I don't know if you're sensing this too, Brian, but it's just everybody's talking about this kind of stuff, yeah. right? It just it seems people are more willing to talk about the doubts that they have and then how to come back from that well. You know, instead of collapsing, I mean, sometimes we hear this too, right? People go through a stage of doubt, but then they sort of snap back to where they were. Yeah. You know, and I'm not sure if that's really, that's really not what you're talking about in your book, Faith After Doubt, but it just seems to be a very popular topic nowadays. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and my inbox says the same thing, uh, Pete. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, people who've read my new book, Faith After Doubt, I, I just get emails, you know, almost every day from people saying, yeah, this is right where I am, including people would be surprised how many pastors and uh, ministers, and not just pastors, ministers, but bishops, and and uh, mm. you know people pretty high up in the religious world. Uh, I just, in fact, and professors. I just got a I just got an email from a seminary <laughs> professor yesterday, who was yeah. really really grateful at help. She said, "I'm going to use this with my students, but this really helps me ex- uh, understand my own experience." So. It's widespread, and well, and it always has been. That's the thing. I think that, but maybe it's more intense now, partly because of the crazy things that are going on in the religious world, especially as it relates to the political world. But I also think um, once a few people start having courage to tell the truth and and admit their doubts, other people don't have to keep the secret secret anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I wanted to jump in here because I think the framework that you provide is potentially really helpful for a lot of people. And I would have to say, you know, one of the things I really respected about how you frame faith after doubt or this process of faith formation and faith development is you you put yourself in a long line of, of traditions of these uh, stages of faith. Yeah. And, and in the back of your book, which I really appreciated, you named kind of uh, all these different William Kierkegaard, I mean, William Kierkegaard, William Blake, <laughs> uh, Soren Kierkegaard, um, you know, Kohlberg and Fowler and, and all these people who have these stages of faith. So I really appreciated you acknowledging that. But you have your own in these four stages of faith. And I think giving people 
people like to kind of know where they are in the journey. When you're when you're wandering in the wilderness, it's nice to have some signposts and mile markers yeah. of, of kind of something to help frame where you are. So maybe could you give us a little overview of your four stages of faith and, and what characterizes each of those? Sure, be, I'd be happy to. Um, and the thing I always like to start with uh, when I talk about these stages, Jared, is to say, look, these are just a tool they're imperfect. They're a simplification of experiences that are way more complex in daily life. And they can be abused. People can use stage theories to put themselves at the top and look down at everybody else and so on. But um, with those provisos out of the way, I also like to say, don't think of these like, you know, trains on a track and you go from one train to another. Think of them like rings on a tree. And the innermost ring where we all start I call simplicity. And simplicity is the stage of authority figures. It's this because when when we all start as children, we don't know what's going on here. And we have to ask authority figures, usually our parents, maybe grandparents, aunts, uncles, uh, eventually pastors and teachers. And we ask them questions. They give us answers. We believe them. And that's how simplicity works. Uh, and, And in a sense, very little doubt happens at this stage, especially early on, because we have every reason, you know, to believe those authority figures. Um, as a result, this tends to be the stage of dualism because we're children. You know, we're not capable of a great deal of nuance. We don't know a lot of history and so on. And so we ask easy questions. They give easy answers. What is that? How does that work? Where do babies come from? Whatever it is, right? And we get our easy answers. But eventually, we start to realize that our authority figures think that some things are good and other things are bad. Some people are right. Other people are wrong. Some groups and places and ideas are safe. Others are dangerous. And we pick up from our authority figures this kind of dualism. And... Mm -hmm. um, a really important thing to understand right from the start, I think, is that for a lot of people, this is what religion is. Religion is a stage one simplicity phenomenon. And in fact, a lot of religious leaders, this is what I think fundamentalism is really. Religious leaders in, in fundamentalist settings, they say, we're giving you the answers. This is it. Your only job is to understand it, believe it, accept it defend it. Uh, and that's that's the story. So that's stage one. That's where a whole lot of us begin. And by the way, it's the same if you're Muslim or Jewish or atheist or Buddhist or whatever. Um, uh, a lot of us are introduced to a stage one faith. Then comes stage two. Uh, for a lot of people, this hits it, begins at puberty. But I think in, in our culture, for a lot of people, it's college that, that inducts us into stage two. And this is where I call it complexity because those simple binary options in, out, us, them, good, evil, start to break down. Maybe, you know, the pastor at your church, you know, runs off and steals money or whatever. Uh, and, and suddenly the guy that you thought was the good guy turns out to be bad or your parents who've been super strict about morality and give you this you know, very strict morality, you find out they're getting a divorce or whatever it is, the simplicity begins to break down. And uh, and at this stage, then, instead of looking for easy answers, we're looking for people 
who kind of serve as coaches to help us cope with a more and more complex world. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so you could say stage one is dualistic. Stage two is pragmatic. How do I make this work? Now, maybe I'll say one more thing and you guys might have a question about these first two stages. But I, um, for those of us who grew up in evangelical settings, parachurch ministries were the, you know, the core of stage two. Groups like Young Life and Navigators and uh, Youth for Christ uh, uh, and uh, Campus Crusade and InterVarsity. And I remember when I was introduced to them, I, I was introduced to the idea of, of doing Bible study yourself. And the idea that people would help me learn how to study the Bible for myself was, is like liberation for a stage two person. You're going to give me tools. You're going to, and in many ways, I think what you guys have offered in the Bible for normal people starts really helping people in stage two who are looking, who are, are being given permission to, to think for themselves mm -hmm. and, and so on. But it, it, would it be fair to say, cause I'm, uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, my experience and a lot of people that I would know where the, the complexity there's. I guess I'm trying to, maybe I'll ask it as a question. What's the relationship between those in this way that some of these parachurch organizations or just others present themselves as kind of a complexity thing where you can really wrestle with it? But but really, you just have to come back to the simplicity answers or else you cause trouble. So it's, it almost seems like it has this facade of allowing for complexity. And it feels really good when you're coming from that simplicity. But if you take that too far that starts to break down and it feels like it, it's really at its core still this simp dualistic framing of faith. Would that be fair to say? Well, well I think it is in 90% of the settings. I hope that will change, but maybe we'll come back to that later, Jared. But maybe here's a way to say it. I, I grew up in, in a fundamentalist sect, really. And I remember when I got a little older and I think I was entering into complexity, I met this youth leader and I, I can't even remember the issue. But I said, hey, what's the biblical view? Of course, that was the idea. There's one biblical view. <laughs> and when you're in stage one, the purpose of the Bible is to give you the easy in, out, us, them answers. I asked him, what's the answer to this issue? What's the right position on this issue? And he says, you know, Brian, I think there are four different views on that. And, and then he ran through each one, giving it a very fair description. And I said, well, which one is right? And he said, I don't really think it matters. I mean, I think each of them has strengths and weaknesses. I tend to lean toward three and four, but whatever, you know, they are. And I just remember, you know, my mind was blown because I didn't, I'd never been able to see an issue uh, be addressed in that way and showing respect to people who see things differently. But right. um, that's great. And, and yeah. I would say not just parachurch, but in many ways, many megachurch, uh, megachurches operate this way. They won't want to talk about theology. They, they won't want to talk about pr free will versus predestination or whatever. They'll want to talk about what are the five steps to a good marriage? Uh, and, um, but you still can get in trouble with these people, Jared, as you were saying. Yeah. And you, the way you can get in trouble is to have a different agenda than they do. So if the pastor's goal is to have a big church, a mega church, 
and you do something that might scare people away, like you talk about racism, you'll, you'll be fired really quickly. In other words, they'll get rid of you just as quickly, um, but it'll be because you're off brand or you're off project, not because you have the wrong well, idea. You have a different pragmatic agenda. Yes, yes. Right. That's right. Okay. You know, just on complexity, because you mentioned uh, it's happening in college, and I can just attest to that with students, you know, teaching at a Christian college. For some of them, the complexity is simply having a roommate. Yes. Who believes things differently than they do. Yes. And that's a huge shock, because a student say to me, when I got here, I didn't, I thought everybody thought exactly the same way I did, and it was, things are pretty simple. And then they hear things not just from professors, but from their fellow students. And um, it's a good place for a faith crisis to happen, I think, in a context like that that supports it. But many others, I think, go it alone. Yes. And they don't realize how common this move from simplicity to complexity is. It happens I think it's, um, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm talking about things I don't understand, but it seems like almost an in, unavoidable movement on some level, unless you're really, really just sheltered. Somehow. Yes. Yeah. Isolated or insulated. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Insulated. I guess that happens too. So. Well, and, and in fact, yeah. it, not all Christian colleges are like this, but many Christian colleges probably were, were designed so that people would only learn with other people who think what they think, right? And, yes, uh, right. But that's right. breaking down. I mean, social media is one, another way that breaks down faster and faster. But here's the thing. Even in the world of social media, you know, we have people who get all their news from Fox News. And, and, and in a sense, they build a whole world where everyone sees things like they do. Uh, and, and so it becomes this big bubble of confirmation bias. And, and so a lot of people can live in simplicity their whole lives. A lot of people can live in complexity their whole lives. I, I think maybe one way to distinguish is in simplicity, the other people are your enemy. You're saved, they're damned. You're of God, they're of the devil. In complexity, it's kind of like, we don't see it the same way. And I'm glad I'm with my people over here, but we got to get along. And so let's find ways to work together and get along. That would be yeah. kind of the stage two mm -hmm. thing. But then for a lot of people, that breaks down because once you encounter enough complexity, you start to feel that what your authority figures told you in simplicity was much of it was wrong and misguided. And at that point, many people enter perplexity and perplexity in a sense is a rejection of both stage one and stage two. There are no simple answers and there are no easy steps to success. Life is just, just confounds all of the easy answers and easy pragmatics. And that's why you might call stage three perplexity a stage of relativism and skepticism. And I think graduate school, I know some people do it, but if you go to a good graduate school, it's very hard to go through it without entering stage three in some way. Amen. Uh, partly because what graduate school does, you know, when you're an undergraduate, you're given a textbook and the textbook in a sense presents information as if most folks agree, <laughs> but you get to graduate school and you find out that all the top scholars have vastly different views and they're arguing with each other and they're questioning the validity of their whole discipline and all of this critical thinking is going on. And when you enter that world, 
this doesn't have to be the case, but it almost always is the case. In your religious mm-hmm. life, you're in trouble because your religious leaders yeah. are almost all in stage one or stage two, or at least they pretend right. to be. And now you're faced with feeling very alone because you're out of sync. You're asking deeper questions. You're asking whether it's not just who's right. It's is the whole idea of somebody being right even a valid idea? A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting, Brian, because the you just touched on something I think is very important. Um, my own experience and that of others, you know, you go to graduate school, but then you come back and teach in simplicity or complexity institutions, and it's hard to sort of coexist yes. like that. But it seems that that's where it would seem to me that's where many of the at least let's say American evangelical-ish Christian institutions live yes. in simplicity and complexity. I mean, are there institutions of perplexity? 
Well, can you even have an institution of perplexity? Yeah, I mean, really, uh, to me, that's why higher education is so powerful at its best, especially at the graduate level. But it's the best undergraduate professors introduce their students to this. And, And sometimes, you know, a high school student sneaks in. I had two high school teachers who I think gave me a taste for perplexity. And uh, and I just remember being both drawn to it and a little scared of it. Right. But it was this yeah. feeling like they're in a different world. They see things a little differently than the rest of us do. And that can and the, the students who are ready tend to show up at the, the professor's office hours <laughs> with with additional questions to ask. I personally think that this there's been a lot more of this through Christian history than we tend to hear, partly because People in stage one and stage two told us a lot of our Christian history. But when you think about many of the monastic orders, when you understand in the Catholic Church to join an order, in a sense, you're saying the standard operating procedure of church life is not enough for me. It's not working for me. I need some people who are looking at this differently. And uh, and so I think what happens in stage three is you either become a mystic or a cynic, or you become a cynical mystic or a mystical cynic. But the the cynicism is critical thinking, and the mysticism is an ability to live with unknowing. And when you are ready to take that step, I think that's when you move to stage four, and uh, that I call harmony. And it's where you begin to integrate you know, there are some times where we have to make choices and say, this is right, this is wrong. Everything I learned in simplicity wasn't as simple as they told me, but there was still some value there. And we all have to be pragmatic and get along in the world. Oh, there was value in stage two and in, in complexity and great value in stage three. But the problem in stage three is I can always critique and take things apart. But I got to this really hits people often when they have children. I have children. What am I going to teach them? (laughs) And then this is where things really become interesting, because if you become if you reach stage four while you have children, then you don't want to raise them to be stage one people. You want to help them. The way you'll teach them simplicity is a way that invites them to grow beyond it. And the way you teach them complexity is a way that invites them to grow beyond it. The same with perplexity. And, and this to me is, uh, well, I, I, I've heard, you know, on the Bible for Normal People, a couple really great discussions about how do we teach children? How do we teach them about the Bible? Because now more and more young parents, I think, are reaching stage four and they want a new way, a, a new approach. Within that parenting, just before we move on from that, what have you seen? And I'm just kind of going off my gut here. Yeah. I think so if you're you you come to a place, maybe you're in perplexity. In perplexity, I feel like there's definitely a reactivity of, I don't want my kids to be raised in simplicity or complexity. Yes. And and even within harmony, I feel like there's a tendency to want to kind of skip steps. And so I'm getting my, my, my synapses are getting mixed up here because in some ways it feels like this is an experiential process. Yes. Um, and so I'm not sure that you can just decide not to be these things because of yes. the way you framed it at first was almost like childhood development. Like our brains are wired to be simplistic when we're younger because that's what it can handle. And then it can be complex. So maybe that's different when we're older. Maybe we can kind of 
rush through steps more quickly because we're more developed. But as kids, it's not that we can... I've just seen that in some kind of parents' uh, approach where they're trying to like rush them through these processes. But also, we don't want to set them up for a, a... a crisis of faith later. It's not like let's set up this house of cards and you know what? At some point you're going to have to knock it down and it's going to be terrible for you, but that's what I want. That's went why through. there's therapy. You so how do you, how do you, how have you seen, how do you, when, you know, what's your wisdom on how to navigate those two maybe polar or those extremes? Well, here's the interesting thing. Um, this, I mean, this is a problem across religious traditions. Let me give you a quick example. I have a friend who's Hindu and when he was a boy, his his mother gave him a, a picture storybook of stories from the Bhagavad Gita and the Rig Veda, uh, two of this, the Hindu scriptures. And it's remarkable how similar it must have been to Bible storybooks that I had, right? And instead of learning about Moses and David and Jesus and Paul, you're learning about Ganesh and Krishna and Vishnu and so on. And in Hindu uh, iconography, Gods are always pictured with the color blue. They have blue skin. Um, And I I probably shouldn't say they're always pictured, but typically pictured. And my friend told me, he asked his mother one day, do gods really have blue skin? And and his mother said, yes, they do. And don't ask questions. Just believe what I tell you. And he said, you know, (laughs) when when he heard me talking to Christians in this way, he says, oh yeah, I had my version of that too. But you could also imagine a parent saying, listen, son, whether Vishnu existed or whether Ganesh existed, they're stories and we look for the meaning in the stories. So yeah, don't worry about whether they have blue. If you want to think that they have blue skin, you can if you want. But let me ask you this, son. Why do you think an artist would put blue skin on a person? Uh, you know, and then they, they can have a conversation. And in that sense, the child would be invited to become part of the interpretive community. He wouldn't be told, stop thinking. We're telling you what to think. He'd be, he'd be invited to have an opinion of his own and taught to respect the opinions of others. And the, the community that I think does this better than anybody else at this point in history is the Jewish community. Because when you're a child and you're introduced to Torah, you're introduced to the arguments of the great rabbis through history. I was just with a rabbi friend over the weekend, and I heard him give a couple of lectures, and it's exactly what he did. Every lecture was had the stories of the arguments of the great scholars of Judaism. And you don't hate some of them and love the others. You say, our community struggles and we have arguments and questions. We see things differently. And I think that is a wonderful invitation into more of a stage four mindset. Does that make sense? Brian, can I follow up a little bit? Because, uh, you know, I'm channeling here a lot of I think younger parents with, say, toddlers uh, that I know, a lot, a lot of them through my daughter who has a couple of daughter, toddlers yes. right now, who are in that stage of, you know, maybe perplexity and harmony and who don't want to tr- literally traumatize their children with views of God, like, if you pray, God will take care of you. Yes. Until he doesn't, right? So, yes. um, so just your experience 
Talk about that a little bit more, what that might look like yes. to offer a different model of simplicity for children. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard Walter Brueggemann say something once. Uh, he said, teaching children the Bible is like teaching children about sex. You don't want to tell them more than they're ready for, but you never want to tell them anything. You'll have to untell them later. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> I, I think that's a great way to say it. And, and, you know, we, of course, a lot of us parents don't do a very good job of teaching our kids about sex, but we, we find ways to be honest about their questions and we try to never tell them things that are just not true. Right. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're a stage four parent and your child, well, I, I, a story uh, I, I tell on one of my sons, who's now 39 years old, but when he was, I forget now the age, but let's say six or seven, maybe eight, we're driving home from church one Sunday. And I said, how was Sunday school? And he just rolls his eyes. He says, oh, dad, I don't want to go into it. <laughs> and I said, what, what's wrong? <laughs> he said, he said, Dad, you're not going to believe this, but they tried to tell us that there was this bunch of people who were being chased by some bad guys and they got to the edge of a big ocean and it opened up and they walked across. And when they got to the other side, the ocean closed on the bad guys. And he was just like telling me, like, can you believe that some people actually (laughs) believe that? Like they expected us to believe that. And I first thought, wow, I guess I haven't taught my kids uh, the Exodus story yet. But my second thought is I was proud of my son because he felt safe to say to me, this just sounds, you know, really, uh, you know, unbelievable or difficult to believe, or this sure isn't my experience that life goes this easily. So you could imagine a child saying to you, I don't really think that happened. And then you say, and, and not shaming the child, saying, yeah, you know, did you know that some scholars aren't really sure that happened either? And then the son said, oh, yeah. And then maybe you follow up with a question. Why do you think a group of people would find meaning in a story like that? Or, or even whether they make it up or how it, they may be exaggerated parts of it. But why do you think people would tell a story like that? Maybe there's meaning in this story that could help all of us. And that's that's the direction I've tried to go, you know, with my children and now my grandchildren. Um, and I'll tell you, in my own life, it pays off. Well, here's the way I say it. Instead of interpreting the Bible literally, we interpret it literarily, meaning we take it seriously and we look for meaning. And, and we realize that when people make up stories or when they embellish stories or exaggerate stories, especially when the process of generating the story doesn't just happen in one creative individual's brain, but in a whole community's brain, important things are going on in the evolution of that story. And the story can have meaning whether or not it was true. And if a Christian finds that hard to believe, then they have to say, why did Jesus speak in parables? Because he seemed to think that made up fictional stories were one of the most important tools in his repertoire. I want to get back to the four stages real quick. And and I'm going to have an agenda here. Yeah, I would, I would put this, you know, this perplexity. I see a lot of people under this label more and more called deconstruction. Yes. Uh, Critical, um, and, you know, you talk about how leaders are starting to seem more as manipulators who control. Yes. And 
how, what's the move from, because we're far along enough in this conversation, we have a lot of people maybe who've been with us as, at the podcast for the last five years and kind of joined on the beginning. They're, they're four or five years in, yes. and they're feeling stuck. Like, okay, I'm, I'm in this, but I want to move beyond yes. I do want to get to that faith after the doubt and after yeah. the cynicism. What's the move from perplexity to, to harmony? Or, and maybe even what's the blockages that keep people from making that move? So, Jared, that is a question I, boy, I just think is really important. And I think I have a better answer for that now than I did when I wrote the book. Um, And here's what I would say. I I think that our religious communities don't just have a problem with doubt. I think they have a problem with authoritarianism. And I like to say, I don't think doubt is the enemy of faith. I think doubt is the best friend of faith. I think doubt is the enemy of authoritarianism. And I think in stage three, we're so angry at the authoritarian, at the authority figures that told us what to think and said they knew things that they didn't know and required us to say things that say that we believe things that we had no way of knowing whether we believed or not. We didn't even understand them. Right. And and especially when you look back in history and you think that, you know, how many Jews were killed and 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 their lives were lived under horrible oppression and and bigotry by Christians and all their problems would have been solved if they just said I believe in the holy trinity right in other words they just had to play a game and then they they're no longer stigmatized um so when you come to terms with authoritarianism here's where I think you go through a shift in stage 3 first you're pissed off at those authoritarians. You're angry at them. And then you start to realize, but you know what? There's a story about why they were authoritarians. And you know what? I could have been like that. And maybe I have been like that. And you know what? They're just human beings. And there's this sense when you say they're just human beings, then you are faced with a personal question. And that is, if I'm not going to live my life under the the domination of authoritarian leaders. And if I'm not going to just spend my life being bitter at them, I've got to take authority for my own life. And that to me is like this step of growing up. And sadly, it's a step that will be opposed. You know, we we see it like with teenagers. Many parents don't want their kids to grow up, right? (laughs) They want their kids to stay obedient and quiet and cooperative uh, if if they ever were. Uh, They certainly don't want to go through puberty because now to have another sexual being in the house just complicates everything. And so these parents just squash their children, don't want them to grow up. Well, you know what? There's a lot of religious leaders and doubt is like puberty and they just want to keep things simple. And when people say, okay, I'm done with that, I, those religious leaders have no more magic for me, no, and, and I'm not going to live my life just reacting to them. I've got to take authority. I've got to grow up. I've got to make some decisions for myself, and I have to be willing to live with the consequences. That, to me, is a step of maturity, and I think it's what nudges you into that fourth stage. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Does that ring true, Jared? And don't, you know, I, if that doesn't, isn't satisfactory, keep pushing because I'm interested. Well, no, I, I think it does. And, you know, when you when you said that, I don't want to shoehorn my guy Kierkegaard in here, but it, it sounds to me in some ways, I, I really appreciated the phrase you used of taking authority for your own yes. life, which just frankly, a lot of people I know that they're feeling this arrested development, like they were stunted yes. from doing what would maybe come more naturally, like literally in a, in a pubescent or post pubescent yes. stage of life yes. where you do take ownership of your own life. They were taught that they can't trust that authority. Yes. And so they had to continue to hand it over to these authority figures. And now they're 35, 40 years old and realizing they've, they've missed the boat. And now they're basically having to go back to be teenagers. And that's where, for me, I see that angsty pissed off as like a normal do that yes. because that's the stage that you, mm-hmm. you missed that you need to go back and recapture and reclaim. And I think of uh, just Kierkegaard when he talks about uh, this move for me could also be reframed as the move from objectivity where all meaning and, you know, purpose and things are found external to ourselves and we're searching for it to subjectivity where we find it within ourselves. Yes. And that is that, and I think for me, that's what I heard you say between perplexity and harmony is I'm, I'm starting to move to own my own subjectivity, not relativism, but subjectivity. Yes, I, I think that's it. And you and I can both see how Kierkegaard's life and work uh, exemplifies that so powerfully. Yeah. He has to look around at all of his comrades in Denmark and say, most of these people are just following the crowd and they've never learned how to be individuals. They've never learned how to take responsibility for their own thinking and so on. And obviously, mm-hmm. there's a kind of individualism that we're not talking about where you just don't you know, give a rip about anybody else. You're just, right. that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about basic adulthood and basic maturity. Uh, maybe one other thing that I could say that might help folks see how this f- process works and how you don't have to just blame anybody for being what they become. You can maybe have empathy, even compassion on them. If you think about it like this, in cultures and through periods of history, when most people had their first child when they were 14 or 15 years old, maybe 16 or 17, you think they maybe are in stage one, maybe they edge into stage two, and now they have a child. And guess what? They're, they're going to teach their children what their parents taught them and the way their own parents taught them. So in a sense now, they spend the next 16 years of their lives teaching stage one to other people. So first they learn stage one, and now they teach stage one. And if they, in those days, might have had four or five or eight or 10 children, so now from you know 16 to 45 or 50, they're preoccupied with teaching in a, to, to children who are in simplicity. You, can, you can't blame them for not growing beyond simplicity, it, especially if life was hard. And one of the things that's happening to us through all kinds of things that are, have a mix of good and bad, we don't have to be dualistic about it, is that many of us have a lot more leisure. We have fewer children. We have children later. We're exposed to people of many different cultures. All of these things push us into places where our grandparents may be never really had to go. Right. 
You know, it's something is striking me here. If I can just have a moment and do a little self therapy, um, I you know I taught for many years in an institution that I think it's fair to say was marked by simplicity. And Jared's nodding his head. Yes. Uh, and again, I don't say that as a judgment, just as an observation. But I was a person of perplexity yes. because of, you know, graduate school. But after I left the, that institution, it took a few months for me to have a real existential crisis because it came down to, Pete, you no longer have people circumscribing what you believe. Yes. Now you're on your own. So what are you going to do? Yes. And that's that movement toward authority, self-authority, right? Just, I mean, that's, that's, I even sort of shake saying that because of the, you know, having to detox from, you know, you're not your own authority. God's the authority. Yeah. But, you know, we have to trust sometimes our inner voice too, about what God is doing, what God is saying. And it's not just what the system tells you, but that was... I remember, I mean, I remember the day I came to that realization, standing in my bedroom, staring out the window saying, well, Pete, what do you believe? And start thinking through this without those authority figures over you. You have to become someone who's steering his own ship. And I, I, I just want to bring that out because I just, I can imagine people listening, reading your book and listening to this discussion being in a very, very similar place, because that is a very frightening place to be, to own your own subjectivity, right? As, mm-hmm. as Jared says, uh, we're, not, we're not taught to do that as religious beings in, again, not to be simplistic, but the evangelical West and fundamentalist West. We're not yes. taught that that's part of our own journey as people of faith. And, and we pay the price for it eventually. We do. And other people do, too, because that's where all of this stuff flows into politics. So if you're brought up in a family of white supremacists, you believe white supremacy is right. You have no reason to doubt it. The best people, the people who fed you and nursed you and cleaned your butt when you dirtied your diaper, those are the people who, along with the milk of your nourishment, taught you white supremacy. And you're going to stay a white supremacist Unless at some point you have the courage to differentiate and say, my grandfather believed that, my dad believed that, my mom believed that, I will not believe that. And in fact, the next time I'm home for Thanksgiving dinner and my dad says that racist statement, I am going to stand up and say, I cannot be in the room and hear you say that without telling you, I find what you just said is appalling. And, you know. Life gets complicated, right? But that's part of growing up. And what religious, a certain kind of fundamentalist religion keeps people from being able to stand up to their parents that way. And by the way, if people are struggling with this and in terms of the Bible, try this one on. Here's like, to me, this is one of those texts that freaks people out, freaked me out. But there's a passage where Jesus says, don't think I came to bring peace, but a sword. And then... Uh, and I, I don't think he means a literal sword, right? He's a man of peace. He never kills anybody, anything like that. I think Jesus is thoroughly nonviolent. But he uses that violent image and follows it up like this. For I have come to set a man against his father, a, a woman against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I forget exactly. Uh, but everyone is I've come to set the younger generation against the older generation. It's what's there in the text. And 
I, when I take that seriously, I think Jesus is saying, I'm here to upset the apple cart. I'm here to upset things. I'm here to say the younger generation has their own dreams and their own visions, and they don't just have to endlessly repeat what their elders are saying. I think that's, that's what Jesus is about. Frankly, you hmm. see it all through the Bible, too, as you both well know. But, boy, we're taught to miss that when we read the Bible, when certain people, you know, teach it to us. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like there's some a level of... To, to be able to do what you just said, there almost has to be a non-dualistic way of thinking, or at least a, a complex way of thinking, because there's a sense where uh, the loyalty to my tribe, the loyalty to the person who fed me, for me to disagree is considered an act of disloyalty, yes. um, not by just them, but by me. And so it takes the, the being able to have that nuanced thought to say, I can disagree with you and still love you and still respect you and still be grateful to you. That's a, that's a complex thought that I think is, is maybe difficult for some people. I think you're so right, Jared. And here's where, again, it's such a tragedy that the Bible has only been taught as a stage one document by stage one teachers. Because like you go in the New Testament to Romans chapter 13 uh, and 1 Corinthians chapters, you know, 11 through 14. And they're dealing with issues like meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul refuses to say who's right and who's wrong. He, mm -hmm. he recasts it. It's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of freedom and conscience. And suddenly that becomes more of a stage two problem. How are you going to manage this? And then to me, and Jared, this is where you, when you asked before about stage four, what gets people there? At the middle of both, both of those passages in Romans and 1 Corinthians comes this call to love. Uh, and, and, and what does he say? When I was a child, I spoke like a child. When I became mature, you know, things were different. And what's maturity about? It says that love is even better than faith and hope. So it pushes love to the top of the agenda. So now, driven by love, I, in a sense, that becomes my guiding force into stage four. Um, and and, it, and mm -hmm. it, so it means when I stand up to my parents, I have to do it in a loving way. When I confront Pharaoh, I don't hate Pharaoh. I say, let my people go. <laughs> right? And, yeah. and uh, so to me, that, that's exactly where the, the scriptures take us again and again. But we just have centuries of tradition of as if the whole hermeneutical, the whole interpretive framework is within this very small dome. I'm thinking of the Truman Show, you know, where everything happens <laughs> within the dome of stage one, maybe stretched to stage two. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, Brian, that um, there's so much going on here in this discussion. Maybe just one more thing to, to talk about uh, very briefly, but it's it's being stuck between... yes knowing what you don't believe and then like what to believe. And, yes. and I know sometimes that's a complicated discussion because sometimes it, this is my experience. Sometimes people ask that because, okay, Pete, thanks for this that you've written. You've taken away my Bible from me. Yes. Now, what do I replace it with? That's one way of looking at it or just having rigid beliefs, but then saying, do I just believe 
anything? How do we, how do, and that's, that's a difficult thing for people to navigate. So could you speak to that just briefly and and maybe how people can, can conceptualize that? Sure. Well, the first thing I want to say, Pete, is that you and Jared are doing this. I see every episode. It's what you're doing. You're modeling a way of taking the Bible seriously, even reverently, but also playfully and having permission to think critically. And you're modeling this for people. And I think what's in the back of a person's mind when they say, you've taken something away from me, here's what I think is really there. You've created a social dilemma for me because the way you're reading the Bible will never be acceptable to my pastor or my uncle or my parents or the church I go to. And and you've created a social dilemma for me. And I would just say, yeah, that's right. And you're growing up and you're an adult and this is part of growing up. You know, that's that's reality. Yeah. That's the challenge. But you're, sometimes you know, hell is on the table, too, Brian. I think for some people that they 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 need to have some sense of that simplicity. Yes. Amid the complexity, you know, again, maybe that's a little simplistic, but that's at least my experience that that's, that's like, what's going to happen to me when I die? Yes. That comes up a lot. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I just think that, yeah, and this is part of the totalizing framework of a sort of very simplistic version of Christianity. And by the way, we've got to remind people that there are Catholic versions of this, Protestant versions, Orthodox versions, and there are Muslim versions and Buddhist versions. This isn't just a Christian problem. It's a human problem. And uh, here's the irony. If you want to become an individual, you need at least a few friends who want you to become an individual. (laughs) In other words, you need to find some group of people because, you know, we human beings are social creatures. Uh, uh, even the word consciousness, you know, it, to know with. We, we need other people to even know, to help figure out who we are. And, and here's the great tragedy. There are many people who don't have a single peer who will give them the room to ask these questions. And frankly, these days, you know, whatever Martin Luther did with the 95 Theses, I think that the counterpart to that today is podcasts. And I think, you know, every episode, you guys create a space where people listen and they hear people who are thinking in ways that they have never been given permission to think. And it's modeled for them. And to me, this is my vision. It's why I can't give up on the church. To me, the church is a place where there are a core group of people who are learning to live with that maturity Paul talked about, where love is the most important thing, where nothing else matters except faith expressing itself in love. And you find people for whom love is the guiding force. And in a certain sense, that's the, that's the only simplicity that really will take you very far in life. Hmm. The simplicity of saying love is the most important love is is preeminent and of course suddenly we're back to the great commandment of jesus of loving god loving our neighbor loving ourselves and i think we have to add in today's world loving loving the world loving the earth itself Mm -hmm. well i think that's a great place for us to to wrap this up to end in love to end in that the great commandment as sort of the way to navigate these stages of faith and the, the complexities of 
the world. And I think I speak for Pete here to say, appreciate your affirmation of the podcast and the community and, and the conversations that happen here on the podcast. But we were just saying before we got started, uh, you know, we, the place that we find ourselves in or the story we find ourselves in owes a, a lot to you, Brian, for the work you've been doing for just a, a long time, not to say you're old, but you know, you've been doing well, this for is. a long He's time. Old. Um, <laughs> and you've been, you know, you've been, you've been beating that drum for a, a really long time and, and just your persistence and patience with people to come along for the journey, I think is, is admirable. So thank you so much for coming on, on the podcast and for continuing to, to have the conversation and speak up about these things. What Jared said. Well, it's a, it, I mean, here's the thing. We're all in this together and it's not just happening to us as individuals. I think it's happening. It's like the human race, the human community at large is trying to mature and, and we all get to work out part of that process in our own lives and stories. Well, thanks for dropping by. I really appreciate it, Brian. And now for Quiet Time with Pete and Jared. Well, I think this episode in particular begs the question of how does your life fit into these four categories? And again, we run the risk of making it black or white, like they're discrete categories. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably some blurring and some graying of areas. But in general, for you, how do you fit kind of your spiritual journey into these four? Well, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you said that because they do very much overlap. I look at these four, you know, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, harmony, and I see myself inhabiting, depending on what day it is, it's Tuesday, yeah, I guess I'm in perplexity today, but seeing myself in these categories, but I can also see myself having journeyed from a place of simplicity and having some moments of harmony. I can't say that I live there. I'm not Richard Rohr. But, you know, we all, I think we all struggle with that. The, you know, the one that really hits me is perplexity. You know, it's the, the way I understand this is it is this, do I keep going? You know, it, it, you can get very cynical about things and that's an easy thing for me. And so I'm drawn to that only because I can identify and see myself in that. Not that I necessarily like it, but like most people, I guess, you know, I remember being back in seminary, I was probably much more in the simplicity dualistic notion. And even though I wouldn't have used that language and, you know, life happened that made life more complex for me professionally and personally. And I had to start seeing things differently. And, uh, you know, I think I got a lot of help over those years to sort of see the wisdom and honoring the complexity and, and then moving to, okay, well, what's next? What do you do? How do you treat this stuff? You know, is any of it real? You know, where, where do you go from that? And then I think seeking harmony of integrating the strengths of the previous stages, if we can talk that way and moving along and finding some peace. So I, I like these four stages, and I think they, they add something beyond, you know, the construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. That perplexity thing is almost like an in-between kind of stage for me that, like, you're not really sure where things are going. But you're very self-conscious, you're very self-aware of the journey itself. One thing that struck me as we do the reissue here of this episode is, as I look through it now— Harmony doesn't quite sit with me in a way that I probably would have resonated more with it a couple of years ago. And I wonder if that's 
I just think, you know, kind of what you're saying where we can't help but bring all of our past with us. Mm-hmm. All these pieces are still a part of me. And I wonder if there's just a, a lot of different ways that even harmony can look. Like there's some generally true things, but, you know, you mentioning Richard Rohr, and I, I just think the more I get comfortable with my faith and where I am, I don't think it always has to look like Richard Rohr. I think yeah. that's one way that harmony can look. And I think it's common that it looks that way. But just thinking through, like different personalities may express this harmony idea differently. And I think the idea is good. I think the bones are good, but I think it might get fleshed out in a different way. And part of me wonders too, if if this is related to how we view truth, because I can't help but think of it in that way of simplicity views truth in a certain way, complexity views truth in a certain way. Yes. Perplexity starts to see that truth piece getting more, I don't know the right word. Perplexing. But it, yeah, perplexing, <laughs> right. And then this harmony almost seems to say like, oh, maybe it's not just about that. Maybe it's not just about getting it right, which these others seem to still be on. It's almost like perplexity is the mm-hmm. opposite side of the coin of complexity and simplicity, but still within that orbit. It's just now like I'm cynical because it didn't give me what I wanted. And then harmony is like, maybe I don't need to be in that orbit at all. Maybe there's a different way of... A whole different way. There's maybe a whole different way of being in the world that doesn't use it as an anchor point or the orbit, you know, what do you call that? Where where it's orbiting around. Mm -hmm. It's not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. Because that's what strikes me here, reflecting on it a couple of years later, is in some ways perplexity is still defined by a certain, like a black hole. There's a density to it that it's orbiting around. Mm -hmm. That harmony, I think, finally breaks free from. Yeah, it operates very, very differently. And I, you know, with harmony, you know, I'm, I very much have been moving toward, in fact, I think I, I live in doubt as a necessary part of life. And I think you do too, you know, and it's not a matter of having achieved a level. It's just, that's a part that resonates. That's an easy thing for me to get a hold of. For others, they have other properties that are valuable. They might not be quite there on this, but we look different, right? And, and how, you know, the nature of faith is a humble, reverent openness to mystery that expresses itself in non-discriminatory love. That sounds sort of mamby-pamby, but it's not for me. That's very difficult. Mm-hmm. I don't like people, Jared, at all. <laughs> I noticed. At all. I don't even like myself. <laughs> no, it's, you know, non-discriminatory love. It's easy to discriminate, you know, for a million different reasons. But again, I, what I appreciate about Brian's work besides being very insightful, it's very helpful in walking you through paces to sort of put labels on things that are helpful for understanding where you are and what could be coming next and how to navigate that. And I think that's extremely valuable and very much what we want to do with Faith for Normal People is like, how do you do this faith thing? What does it look like? You know, Mm -hmm. and we haven't figured it out. Yeah. And I think doing some self-awareness work too, of maybe seeing, you know, you were talking about different areas, like different areas of our life, we may be in different places with each of these two. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, again, working with families and stuff, it's interesting how in certain relationships we are different and Mm -hmm. we find ourselves being more simplistic and being more binary and black and white, say in family relationships when we're around yeah. our nuclear family, because it brings these things out in us where, yeah, sure, <laughs> with with my spiritual friends, I'm much more about the I'm mystery. Harmony. I'm right. in harmony I'm, with everything. I'm in harmony with I'm everything. one with the universe. Then I go to Thanksgiving dinner and You're I- You're raving uh, fundamentalists, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah, we're dualistic and like, yeah, absolutely right. And I think 
along those lines, you know, in certain social situations, especially with families of origin, right. dear Lord. But even stressors, you know, in, in your exactly. life when you're living and, and things are happening, it's easy to collapse into what is familiar and... You know, let's say, for example, treating God as the cosmic butler who's going to give you things if you pray hard enough. I don't believe that's true, but it's easy to embody that again, depending on stressors. And I think the key is to just accept that and say, okay, yeah, that's that's what I did. And right. uh, am I proud of it? No. Am I ashamed? No. It just, it is what it is, and I'm doing the best that I can. But that's just to your earlier comment, Jared, that these categories are not discrete stages. They, there's a lot of overlap, a lot of gray area, a lot of looping back at mm -hmm, different times mm -hmm. and looping back out again. I think maybe instead of stages, it's just varying loops and we have to learn how to navigate the loops. And sometimes those loops on their courses take you a little bit further. You know, they come mm -hmm. back and then they take you further again. So um, spiraling, but in a good way, not out the, of control. The good spiraling. Good spiraling. <laughs> Oh my. oh my goodness. All right. See you folks. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to the BibleForNormalPeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way. If you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review and tell others about our show. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub. <laughs>